I think for me, kindness, particularly in a professional context, is really getting to understand someone holistically. You know, not just their strengths and weaknesses at work and their technical aptitude, but who are their family, who are their friends, what makes them tick, what gets them out of bed, what are they passionate about? Because I think if you really make the effort and commitment to know someone deeply, you can then empathize with them. You can put yourself in their shoes. You can be a better colleague, a better manager. And I think there's a kindness in wanting to invest the time in someone else. Hello and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future programme, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018 in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way, and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. Natasha Burrows specialises in advising global investors and companies to drive a sustainable and fair future. She is passionate about building partnerships between the private and public sectors, with experience across the FTSE 100, the heart of government and startups. She was one of the first senior appointments to the Office for Investment, a joint 10 Downing Street and Department for International Trade unit that seeks to secure strategic net zero investments into the UK across net zero, green technology and R&D. She has also led the government's relationship with the world's largest family-owned businesses to drive inward investment and philanthropy. Natasha started her career at Tesco PLC, holding various roles in corporate affairs. More recently, she was Director of Partnerships and PR at The Conduit, a 3,500-strong membership organisation dedicated to driving social change, where she led corporate partnerships to shape companies' ESG strategies. She was nominated for the Asian Women of Achievement Award for Public Service in 2018 and sits on the advisory board of the Women of the Future Southeast Asia Awards, founded by Pinky Lalani, CBE, DL. Natasha has Italian, Indian and English heritage and is fluent in Italian. So I'm from, I'm proudly multicultural in background. My mother was born in apartheid South Africa of Indian origin and my father was half British, half Italian and it's a wonderful mix and I've derived a lot of learnings and inspiration and approach to life from all three cultures. Although I think those who know me best would say I'm most Italian in terms of <laughs> zest and approach to life and the way I interact with people and just bring a sort of warmth and Italian lens to everything that I do, which some people appreciate and some people <laughs> might be a little intense at times. But mostly it has worked well for me because at the end of the day, I think people appreciate authenticity. 
Yeah, absolutely. And what were you like at school? Were you very academic? Were you into everything? Did you have a particular focus? Was it quite clear from the outset where you were going and where your interests lay? Or what was your school experience like? Well, my choice of school was actually shaped by what happened when I was young. So when I was seven, my parents divorced. And for some reason, I thought boarding school would be a great idea. I was an only child. I think I wanted some escapism. I think I wanted some company. And I felt a new adventure would sort of propel me into a fighting new face. So I went to boarding school, but I have to say, I didn't really enjoy it. And I think as a consequence, I threw myself into work. So I was extremely academic at school, but I was also an actress, uh, which is probably the Italian coming out again, (laughs) the drama. And and so I was a dichotomy, really, of head in books, particularly. um, I always focused on things that I loved rather than subjects I thought I should study because that's what academic people had to study. So I really immersed myself in languages and history at A-level, but I did a lot of plays and drama and I only wish I had continued that. It's one of my regrets in life, really. I have to say, if someone asked me today what I would have done, it would have been acting. Would it have been theatre acting? Would you have been an EastEnders? <laughs> what kind of thing was it? Or were you just so again, very expressive? I think my background shapes everything really so the role is very specific but the role I would love to play maybe there's still an opportunity Mm. is Sonia Gandhi because obviously Ah. she was Italian who married into the Gandhi dynasty and subsequently went on to be such a pivotal political figure in India and basically was a chameleon and transformed herself so that is the well, someone should do a film and then hopefully I could audition. I was going to say, if someone hasn't made a film about that, that sounds like it needs to be made because that's... I think yeah. absolutely. And we've got so many inspiring female political figures now on the world stage. Mm-hmm. New Zealand, even in our institutions like Christine Lagarde. Yeah. They're just incredible women and um, yeah, great leadership. So as you emerged from your academic life... What was your first foray into the world of work? Did you take on some part-time jobs or did you launch straight into some kind of training scheme? How did it play out for you? A lot of younger women who I mentor or who I've managed have always asked me this, what my approach to my career has been. Mm. And I always answer really honestly, which is I've never taken a strategic approach. I've always been led by curiosity and by people And I think that's why I hopped from trying to be a journalist in my early years Mm. to then do master's at LSE in European EU politics and government to then moving to a FTSE 100 company and then into government and then into a startup and back into government. (laughs) So it is a little nomadic, but it has served me well because I just come back to this word authenticity again and I think that in a career if you're passionate about what you're doing and you enjoy the people that you're working with you're sort of 90% there and sometimes trying to manipulate opportunities or choreograph your career too much I personally think it doesn't always work out in the best way it could Mm. organically. 
I read a fascinating article about you on the LSE website, actually. And there's a quote that I think is quite telling. It was where you said, I wanted to learn somewhere where strong opinions, in Madeleine Albright's words, were used to start discussions, not to end them. Can you speak to that? Was that obviously very important for you? But is that why you chose LSE and over other places? Or what were your thoughts at that point? Well, I think the choice of LSE was mostly they are one of the best places to learn about the EU in the UK mm. without all the bias of our media. And I would say ignorance, I feel, among certain stakeholder groups about what the EU does. But in terms of that debating spirit that that quote evokes, again, it comes back to my background. I come from a family of pioneers and people who tackle difficult social constructs really so I guess to give you an example my great-grandfather in apartheid South Africa was part of the Natal Indian Congress which was a really important organization that supported Indian rights Mm -hmm. in Africa under apartheid my great-grandfather on my Italian side having emigrated to New York in the early 20th century came back a Methodist. He left a Catholic and came back a Methodist. And, you know, there are no Methodists in Italy, really, probably 1%, mostly made up of my family. So (laughs) I have always been inspired by family figures to push boundaries and challenge conventional thinking. I mean, my, my parents were unconventional in terms of being a mixed marriage in 1970s London so I have quite a I wouldn't say activist I wouldn't go as I think that's too strong a word but I definitely like challenging the status quo I find that really stimulating and I'm not afraid to do so because I'll just act my way through it (laughs) (laughs) it takes such strength and resilience to do that and Clearly, as you said, you were inspired by the stories of your fairly recent ancestry. But now you yourself, you specialise in securing investments and partnerships from global investors and companies to drive green growth. And sustainability is such a buzzword right now. I myself are studying for an MSc and we're doing a whole module on leading corporate sustainability and rightly so. But that's not just clearly I mean if you're not familiar with it it's not just about climate change it's about diversity and inclusion and how you address those kinds of issues within organizations but how did you come to that point and also why is it important to you because you were talking earlier about having passion and enthusiasm so that must be there for you. So I've always been interested in I think you know more broadly people are talking about the ESG agenda now environmental social and governance And it's something that I'm exploring with Women of the Future, actually, which I'm sure we can come on to a bit later. But Mm -hmm. I think as I transitioned from seeing how a FTSE 100 company tackled climate change and carbon emissions across their business supply chain and customers, and then how government was seeking to address inequality and drive a net zero future, And then in the startup I was working in, how you could bring together the private and public sector to bring down silos and forge Mm -hmm. collaborations that 
really supported innovation and the technologies and the solutions we need to drive a more just and sustainable future. Because you said it's not just about net zero, it is about this being a fair transition. It sort of came to me organically, and I have now specialised in this area. And I think what I enjoy the most and what I'm most passionate about is bringing together the right people, the right actors, who are all such incredibly important component parts of the wider solution and how they all interrelate. They all need to work together. And I think we're not able to, at the moment, whatever challenge it is, whether it's ethical supply chains or whether it's alternatives to plastics. Yeah, yeah. We don't, we don't have the scale of ambition and the capital and the visionary thinking across the private and public sector to make systemic changes. We're doing it too piecemeal and it's not fast enough. And so that's what I enjoy, really getting under the skin of these actors, understanding their point of view, what resources they have, what they're trying to achieve and try to marry all of those objectives together. And it comes down to relationships, I think, at the end of the day. If someone had to ask me what my main skill would be, it's relationships, building relationships, maintaining relationships, Mm. forging collaborations. It's a skill that I think has been undervalued in recent years. But I think with all of these massive challenges that we face, it's probably up there in terms of the top three that you need. I mean, just look at COP this year. That's a huge exercise in diplomacy across hundreds of countries that all have diverse viewpoints and attitudes towards what a net zero future looks like. And communication as well has never been more paramount in that effort of collaboration too. Across all the work you've done so far, is there a standout moment in your career that you would say was pivotal for you? It could be a moment or a person, I suppose, that maybe helped really solidify that you were doing the right thing. This was the role for you. This was the career. Was there like a light bulb moment or anything like that for you? Um, Yes, I mean, it was a profoundly sad moment in my life, but I have drawn a lot of positivity and optimism from it. So sadly, seven years ago, when I was just turning 30, my father passed away of pancreatic cancer very suddenly, and he was an eminent professor of medicine, really larger than life in the medical community. And you just couldn't imagine a figure like that just going suddenly. And it was a real loss because everyone has that person in their life who is their rock and it felt like the ground had dissolved underneath me and I didn't realize how resilient and strong I was at that point and I think grief whenever it comes it happens to everyone. I'm, I'm by no means alone in this situation. I know many people who've had parents pass away prematurely, but I think that faced with grief, it's such a complicated emotion, very difficult to understand. You can either succumb to it or you can, you know, use it as a platform to really reshape your life and to, you know, build on the positive legacy of your loved one. Mm. And that's what I did 
and I could have gone in a very different direction of depression and complicated grief and not achieving my potential because it is so easy to lose yourself in that black hole of despair and loss but you know I didn't and I went on to really try and make the best of myself given the opportunities my dad kindly gave me in terms of education and to use his death as an inspiration so I, that was a real pivotal moment for me. And also sort of don't sweat the small stuff. <laughs> I rarely get stressed about things. Um, I mean, everyone gets stressed, but I mean, I really do have a different perspective on life and what's important and what isn't. And I think that helps in your mm. career as well, because, you know, if a job isn't working out or if you want to try something different, you do it. Uh, I'm willing to take more risks. There's a great book that I recommend to all the women I meet at work called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway by Susan Jeffries. It's brilliant. So we should all just lean into fear. I agree. I completely, I'm going to go read that book too. But I think when it comes to grief as well, we're all entitled to just do what feels natural to us, aren't we, as part of that process? If you want to take your time, if you want to process it, if you want to just withdraw for a little while and regather your thoughts or however you respond to grief, it's very subjective. And there are stages of it, as we all know, and they can come in peaks and troughs and at very awkward times and what have you. But that you say you can use it pragmatically, but also take the time to just work it through as well no absolutely I mean yes you're absolutely right people have different reactions to grief and it's a very difficult thing to talk about I don't think I've talked about it at length to even mm. my friends um, and there is no right way I mean I would never want to suggest that I, it comes back to authenticity again you know the authentic way for me to carry on would be to throw myself into work as I did at school mm. and <laughs> as I have always done so I'm proud of that moment because I continued on the journey that I seem to have started yeah. from when I was much younger I always call it like a moral compass you always come back to your true north your main motivation yes yes that is a much better way and more <laughs> succinct way of encapsulating it yeah absolutely so across the work that you've done which is quite incredible with some massive organizations and with government bodies is there any one thing in particular that stands out for you or that you're particularly proud of I think when I was in government we managed to scale an initial idea of dealing with investors and family offices around the world. We scaled it from a few markets to becoming a truly global team. And it was such a privilege to engage with investors and colleagues in consulates and embassies around the world and Latin America and Southeast Asia and India and being able to I think, understand the cultural nuances in such a way that allows you to scale that kind of engagement for me was really satisfying because it comes down to people again. And apart from being incredibly interesting because an investor in Israel acts and wants very different things to an investor from Colombia oh, um, 
and you've got to bed in enough flexibility and depth of proposition and relationship management in your team to be able to service those different stakeholders so that I enjoyed a great deal and I'd love the opportunity to work in a really truly international environment again but it's rare but government does allow you to do that because of the diplomatic network that we have. Sounds like a real sense of achievement as well from that. I think the thing about investment is that when deals land they're really tangible and the deals and projects that I've worked on as, as you said at the beginning have always had an element of regeneration, job creation, you know having a real sense of impact in terms of environmental or social impact and so that is very satisfying because you're making other people's lives better in the <laughs> simplest sense of the word and it's happening in your lifetime you know a lot of us working on climate change climate adaptation climate mitigation for example we won't see the impact of a lot of our work in our lifetime but with the nature of the work I was doing in government you do and it's immediate and it's people's lives. I've always had a strong sense of public service. I don't think everyone needs to be in government to be a public servant but it is a privilege to be working and to have worked in government in the truest sense of the word. <laughs> And talking about satisfying roles, how did you first hear about the Women of the Future programme and what inspired you to get involved and how are you working with them now? So it was a huge honour, as <laughs> many women have said, to have met the Women of the Future chairman and founder Pinky Lalani at an event. And I was so inspired by her words that I sort of bounded up to her and volunteered to do anything uh, she wanted me to do quite that's, frankly. That's dangerous when you say that to Pinky. It is um, and at the time I was working in government and I saw an opportunity to collaborate with Pinky and her team on their Women of the Future Southeast Asia Awards and they have an annual award ceremony in Singapore obviously because of the pandemic it's pivoted to digital at the moment but I'm sure it will be back soon in person and the great thing about women of the future promoting that approach of kindness and collaboration across the world not just in the UK is that it aligned very well with government's ambitions to strengthen bilateral ties between the UK and the region and I think what Women of the Future Southeast Asia Awards does so beautifully is it nurtures and identifies incredible female talent in that region who are potentially the future investors and business partners for the UK and so we did some events together and now I sit on their advisory board and it's fantastic to see the awards go from strength to strength and our community growing year on year with more markets. And we've put in local country champions this year who are really helping us to identify even more incredible women in different sectors. And there is a new concept we're working on around ESG as well. I mean, I come back to what I was saying 
when I was younger and boarding school and wanting to be in a community in a wider family I mm. think that the women of the future program in all its guises has really given that to me that sense of community and family and kindred spirit and shared values and support and I can support others as well and it really is unique in how the more you give to it it gives back and it's something that happens very naturally and I've been involved for many years I was nominated for the Asian Women of Achievement Award in 2018 and I just encourage everyone to get involved and to be part of the community because it's so rewarding. Right I have some quick fire questions for you just to finish if you're ready. Here we go. What would you describe as your greatest success? I think any woman who's worked for me or with me, I've either helped get them promoted or I've helped them on their career journey through an introduction. And that has been one of the things that has been very important to me because I've been given that support by women in my ecosystem. And so, yeah, any woman who has come into contact with me, I've managed to shape their journey in a positive way. I can't tell you how remarkable that is because I have had many terrible bosses who will just not do that and sadly predominantly male so I genuinely applaud you for doing that because it should just be helping someone who you see talent in or potential and lots of people just don't recognize that so thank you for doing that. Now I think again uh, I mentioned the Italian sort of cultural side of me and well, actually, it's Indian as well. I mean, it can apply to any culture, but I don't really take a hierarchical mindset when I go into work. And therefore, you know, I'm helping a fellow peer. And maybe some people will say, oh, she's so naive to say that because that's not really how the world of work works. But so far, it's just sort of materialized that way. I think you're a shining example of how it can work perfectly. So again, thank you for that. So what would you describe as your greatest failure? Again, I think this comes back to culture. When I was younger, I was probably too deferential to others and didn't want to overstep the mark when it came to people who were older than me. In Indian culture, that is a big thing. But as I've got older, I've got over that and I've been a lot more assertive. But I think it has held me back from applying for some roles or from moving on from certain jobs later than I should have. But, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, I would have been bolder in, in some situations. The mantra of Women of the Future is kindness and collaboration. What does that mean to you in both your personal and professional life? I think for me, kindness, particularly in a professional context, is really getting to understand someone holistically. You know, not just their strengths and weaknesses at work and their technical aptitude, but who are their family, who are their friends, what makes them tick, what gets them out of bed, what are they passionate about? Because I think if you really 
make the effort and commitment to know someone deeply, you can then empathize with them. You can put yourself in their shoes. You can be a better colleague, a better manager. And I think there's a kindness in wanting to invest the time in someone else. Collaboration, I think we spoke about a lot. I think I'm a huge advocate of collaboration. I think we need to collaborate more. I think collaboration should be on every marketing campaign <laughs> that the world has. I just think we need much more of it. And it's great that Women of the Future is such a champion of that approach. Is there anything that scares you? I think what scares me is not reaching my full potential and being bored, um, which I don't think will ever happen. But I think it's linked to my dad, really, psychologically, in the sense that his life was cut short. So mm. I must therefore squeeze every single ounce of every single day and minute to make the best of myself. So I can see where it comes from. But yeah, I would say, yeah, not reaching my full potential and being too self-deprecating. It also, it, this is a bit random, but it kind of makes me think of there's a line in Hamilton where they say, why do you write like you're running out of time? And I think it's that, isn't it? Life is so short and you feel like you've got so much to give or so much to share and collaborate, you know, and to pay forward that you don't want to waste a minute. And that's what made me think of that when you were talking. No, I, I, that's, um, no that, that's a great uh, quote. <laughs> I think also we're also time poor knowing where to direct your energy and yeah, your exactly. time and your resources and sometimes you just don't know whether it's going to be on the right thing you just have to take chances I think yes sera sera that's what we say in <laughs> Italian so yeah yeah you just have to go for it I guess what is left on your to-do list oh um, I just want to read more. There is so much I want to read. So finding a way to read quickly, <laughs> I, I'm still going to master that. Actually, that was on one of my YouTube searches today, how to absorb, how to speed read or how to absorb books quite quickly. But that's quite a skill, I think. Different people have different approaches. So. Mm getting into that as well. Natasha, it's been brilliant speaking to you. Thank you so much. I really feel like I've gotten under your skin a little bit, which is nice. <laughs> but thank you for taking the time. You're a huge inspiration. And thank you for all that you do for other women that are trying to follow in your footsteps. No, thank you, Kim. I really enjoyed speaking to you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Women of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Women of the Future Awards, network and initiative, please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon.